Hi there and welcome back to the ESPN Footy Podcast. Hello everybody, welcome to another episode of the ESPN Footy Pod, proudly sponsored by Subway. Get your mid-match feast delivered fresh, Subway eat fresh. I'm Matt Walsh, Jake Michaels, Christian Jolly from Champion Data with you once again. Jake, plenty to discuss this week. We've got a pretty uh, chock-a-block rundown, really. We're going to look at Melbourne's start to 2022 and how it compares to recent dynasty teams. We're going to go through some surprise stats leaders uh, from the stats that you won't find on the AFL website. We're going to play another round of Justified Hype or Hyperbole and a whole lot more. Are you uh, ready to get cracking in? I am good to be back. And um, I love these episodes where Christian comes with these kind of random, quirky stats that, yeah, just all sorts of stuff, all sorts of good stuff that you you don't find anywhere else. So yeah. stay tuned. We are looking forward to this one. And you know what? For those that have been listeners for a long time on this pod, we'll have to do another round of Ask Champion Data and, and put the feelers out on Twitter and, and get some uh, some punter questions in because there are always some interesting ones there after you sort of filter through the, is this person the most uh, free kicks against in the league? You know, does this person miss the most free kicks and all that kind of stuff? When you filter through some of the questions, uh, there's always some gold in there. There's, for a, the there's, there's always two or three good legitimate ones for every hundred <laughs> so, abusive so, messages. <laughs> so all the all, all of you listening at home, if you do have uh, a question in, in mind for Christian and for Champion Data, do hit us up at Footy Tips on Twitter, uh, and we can get those to the team there. And maybe in the coming weeks, we'll do an Ask Champion Data episode. Christian, how does that sound? Yeah, looking forward to it. Excellent. We, we might we might marry that up with the hundredth uh, episode of the podcast, <laughs> which, <laughs> which happened be the, like five hundred seventh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, we'll see how we go. Hey, housekeeping. Just before we get into uh, something we noticed from round eight, Jake. Yes. Jared Leanit. Ah, oh, he's got his photo. He has his photo. At we long said, last. We said on the pod last week we did a bit of um, last minute look before we hit record, and he was still in the port jumper on the website. Uh, yeah. And then I checked after we did the podcast and after it was uploaded and lo and behold, there he is. He's got his own, you know, in his own profile screen, he's in a big St Kilda jumper now with a big smile on. And in the stat screens, he's got a little St Kilda jumper on instead of the port. So he doesn't stand out as much. Which well, is, it's about uh, time. Um, I think we said, we joked that the over under was going to be around nine rounds. Right. So <laughs> it was pretty spot on. Um, yeah. Good on him. I just yeah, wonder I- why it took so long. I think I've been reliably informed that there were a few more players as well that were in that category being top-ups and whatnot. Yeah. Uh, but that, that should mostly have been sorted, which is, which is wonderful to what see. What are these social media people doing? Can't they, just, can't they get in a Photoshop and just put a, <laughs> put a uh, Saints jersey over the top of the port one? Well, they could. I, I was thinking you'd just put his head over someone like who's equally as like pale. Zach Stick Jones him over a... Him. <laughs> 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 oh, you can't do that. It's anyway. like those when they put the two faces of someone together, you got to work out who it is. <laughs> yeah. Zach Jones had a baby with Jared Leanett. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Hey, something we noticed from the round of footy, uh, Christian, I might throw to you first. Uh, yeah, I got a couple. I, I noticed um, it's probably more down your alley, Matt, but I don't know if you saw the uh, Sydney 2012 Premiership uh, had their 10-year reunion on the weekend um, up at the SCG, but there was a photo taken um, and it would have just been in the bar probably when they're having drinks before the game or something, and it's a, a group photo of all of them. But Lewis Jetta is clearly just... Uh, he should have put the uniform on almost. He's sitting there at the front of the photo. You've got to get it up on Twitter if you can find it. And he's sitting at the front of the photo, you know, as if he's sitting there pre-match for the, you know, the photo they're taking. No, nah, well, he's got the fist on his knees. 
Oh, oh like he's, he's ready left. for the t- proper yeah. team photo. Yeah, he's, got the, he's got the big smile. And there's Holding guys, the ball. Or there's guys behind him talking to each other and drinking beers and the old guys sitting next to him and things like that. And there's Lewis Jetta just staring straight down the camera with a big smile on his face. Well, someone's going to take it seriously. <laughs> I did I did see a few photos from that reunion, but I didn't. I must say I didn't look too closely at what Lewis Jetta was doing, but uh, I'll have to look that up and maybe we'll post that to Twitter if we get I a I tell you what, I, I, did, I saw a couple of those photos too and you think it's only 10 years ago, but you're looking at the photo and you're like, who's that? Who's that? It's amazing well, it, how quickly you just can't recognise players. And, and all of those players were up there cheering on Buddy Franklin, who now plays for their team, who played against them in that grand final. So it was, Funny, isn't it? Yeah. It seems like a long time ago, but it's not oh. that far. Uh, the second other thing I noticed, sort of just something I noticed that sent me down a little bit of a wormhole, rabbit hole sort of thing, but um, Gold Coast obviously beat the Swans at the SCG once again, mm. which gives them a, a record of three out of four um, against the Swans at the SCG. So three New games. home ground. Exactly. So it's just one of those backward sort of reverse curses. And I was sort of like just thinking, well, you know, what are the, some of the longest other streaks? And, you know, I know there was another quirky one with West Coast uh, continually beat Port Adelaide in Adelaide um, at Adelaide Oval up until this year. But just the one that I found, and it's just, it's sort of not a venue stated one, but Port Adelaide's beaten Gold Coast uh, the last 12 times they've played, which is the current, currently the longest streak of one team against the other. But what I noticed from that is, is Gold Coast first victory in the competition came in round five, 2011 to the, yeah. and they beat Port Adelaide by I think three points. Um, Back in the tarp days. Yeah. And I think, I think Justin Westhoff <laughs> had a chance to kick a goal after Siren and missed it. So it was very, very close game, but it's almost like the, the, uh, the Geelong Hawthorne 08 grand final curse, where it was almost like Port lost to Gold Coast in that one game yeah. and said, we're not going to lose to these guys again. And they're <laughs> sort of held up their end of the bargain. So I'm not sure when their next game scheduled for this year, but yeah, 12 on the trot so far, Port Adelaide over Gold Coast. Wow. The Primus days, you could call it the Primus curse or something like that, or the reverse curse. Yeah, it's interesting. The one I found interesting was the Port Adelaide having not, uh, sorry, uh, West Coast having not lost to Port Adelaide at Adelaide Oval until most recently. Um, because there were some really interesting clashes that they had, including that, Extra time semi final. Yeah. The, um, um, the Luke Shuey winner. The Luke Shuey from, from 45. But yeah. I, I guess the difference between the, that matchup and Gold Coast Sydney is that aside from this year, which they lost, West Coast has been good. Like that's the difference. Gold yeah. Coast is not a team we've said, oh my God, Gold Coast are a top four team. For, but they keep going to Sydney and winning, beating Sydney, who are always starting as a significant favorite in that game. Mm. Crazy, really. I was looking at the form guide uh, in, in the papers and the, the, the tipping guides, um, and they had 27 ex- experts in the paper that I was reading. And there were four games where they'd go, the way the tipsters had gone 27 and zero. And I think it was uh, the Melbourne Adelaide, ga- uh, sorry, the Melbourne St Kilda game, they all tipped Melbourne. The Carlton Adelaide game, they all tipped Carlton. Uh, oh, there was another one in there the Brisbane West Coast game. Yeah. And then also Sydney to beat Gold Coast. Not one tipster tipped uh, the Suns. And I can tell you, I didn't. So it makes sense. Like, yeah, the fact that they can have done it, but surprisingly when they've been a pretty poor team and the Swans mm. have been pretty strong. Absolutely. Hey, the thing I noticed was um, back to Friday night, and I asked Christian about this just before, about <laughs> posters. I reckon once every once every few months, we there's a quirky poster thing that we notice. And... It was in the final quarter of the Port Bulldogs game on Friday night, Adelaide Oval. Port hit the left-hand goalpost from a, the player's perspective three times in the final quarter. And I reckon it was three times in the first 10 minutes of the final quarter. And I just was got me wondering all sorts of poster stuff. How, what's the most posters ever in a game? Which post gets hit more often? I think you might have 
had a quick look, Chris. Did you have a fun weekend, did you, Jake? Ah, uh, well, that was my Friday night. I was working. You just got to fight. You got to keep yourself entertained somehow. Let's look at the big issues. Yeah, well, this year it's uh, left post has been hit 105 times. The right post has been hit 73 times. Um, and I mean, you talked about uh, noticing with Port Adelaide. So Carlton have hit the post 14 times this year. Uh, 12 of those, 12 of those have been on the left. So bit of note to Carlton is probably aim a bit more right, uh, but they're probably the they're... shuffle across like you're driving. See, why do we, why do we think this is, is it because there's more right footers in the league and they tend to hook the ball like towards the left-hand goalpost. You would think it would even out over time, but then thinking about it more deeply, maybe it doesn't because there's yeah, I, a propensity for. I don't think writings. it would even out over time just because it is. I think there'd be again, you know, an untested theory that, yeah, you're probably, right footers are going to continually slightly miss the right way or get the same sort of swing. So they're probably more likely to start at left and it hits the left post because it doesn't come back in time. And, hmm. you know, we've clearly had more right footers than left footers. So I, I, again, Jake said, it'd pre, you know, similar to a coin toss, it'd be 50-50 if you kept going, but I'm not convinced that it would be 50-50 just because of the um, the skewing of right footers. All right, let, left footers. I'll, I'll, make a, I'll make a wager with you guys right now. I'll buy you... <laughs> Any subway footlong that you like. Yeah. Meatball, thank you. <laughs> yeah. If so, wait, what is it now? 112 to what? No, it was 105 to 73. At the I moment. guarantee it'll be closer by the end of the year. Okay. Closer than what? What is it now? Minus, I, I'm not good at maths. It's, no, it's 32 off. So it's about 32 off. Yeah. There you go. It'll, so it'll be closer to, to the. To 50-50 by the end of the year. That's my prediction. We're putting a we're putting a meatball sub on it. Great. You get a meatball sub. I'll have a I'll have a case of um Oh hang on. <laughs> <laughs> we're already owed a, a beer from our social guy, Jamie. Yes. Who, who thought yeah. that no one would run onto the field after Buddy's uh, I don't know what he was goal. He's from yeah, he just had no idea what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to you, Jamie. Um, I've got a couple as well. Uh, speaking actually of Sydney and the SCG, and speaking of Buddy's one thousand, um, the photo that came out of the weekend of Gill, uh, the photo that, that came uh, yeah. out of Gill, and him just looking like, ah, oh, this has happened, and there's a the, the ground is covered in players. Um, that's a, a one of the great photos, I think, one of the great phone taken photos that we'll see of of uh, Gill during his time as, as head of the AFL. But the other thing I noticed, and this was, I don't know why I was still watching this game at this point, but during the Fremantle and North Melbourne game, the streaker that came onto the field, uh, there was great, and, and this, is, this has been the way for Buddy's 1000th as well, that some of the TikTok videos that have come out of the streaker uh, and the, the, the fallout to all this was wonderful. So his mates have obviously filmed these two guys jump onto the field. One of them's gone to kick a goal after um, a goal has already gone through. One of them slipped and been fallen and been tackled by security, but the other guy made it across, right? So he made it across the ground. Everyone's cheering in that section because it's clearly the most entertaining thing that's happened all, all night. He then jumps the fence to try and run away. And this man who would have been about 50 in a shirt stops him, wraps his arm around him and holds him until security gets there, much to the bemusement and the booze of everyone in the nearby uh, bays. Imagine, imagine doing that in Bay 13 on Boxing Day. Jake, what have we become as a nation when you've got men stopping people who are trying to get away from the security guards? Who sides with a security guard at a sporting event? What's going on? Let the bloke run off. If he's made it across the ground, as far as I'm concerned, you win. <laughs> you avoid paying the, the six to $10,000 fine. It's or a fair it run. 
Um, and, and this bloke's just wrapped him up and handed him over to security. And I've yeah. got to say, it's one of the most un-Australian things I've ever seen. Maybe he's like one of those um, undercover public uh, ticket inspectors on public transport. Maybe he's like undercover security and they he's can just get waiting, for, as well. waiting for streakers to come run in his direction. <laughs> anyway, there was some great videos. So if you haven't seen them on TikTok, I'm, I'm sure you could probably search AFL or something on TikTok and, yeah. and find those. Speaking um, of Freo, just quickly, I know we're going to move on, but what do you make of the Mexican wave? Or the wave. I don't. I think it's. Are we allowed to call it a Mexican wave anymore? I think so. Um, yeah, it was interesting, wasn't it? I think at that point of the contest and the the contest that was being thrown up, I think it's probably fair enough. Don't get me wrong. I've. We know you guys know how much I love David Mundy and Andy Brayshaw. I love. <laughs> I I, you know, Frio's playing well. You've never won a flag. You 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 haven't. Don't get ahead of yourselves yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair enough. Um, they are enjoying a nice little purple patch, pardon the pun. Uh, so I think it's probably fair enough that they can enjoy it for now. But when the whips do get cracking later in the season, yeah, yeah they'd, they'd probably be wanted to be taking a bit more seriously. But, Jake, I'm sure They're the players good. are, if the fans are. No, no, the players are. They look they look good. Uh, and shout out to Christian. He was calling it about a month ago. He was, he was very hot on it. Yep, absolutely. Hey, speaking of streaks as well, we talked about win streaks, teams over different teams. Uh, the Ds have won 15 straight now since round 20 last year, I think it is. Um, and they're looking pretty unbeatable. And this is, this is kind of the, the thing that happens every year around this time when the, the attention starts to go to, when are they going to lose a game? You know, will they go through unbeaten? Uh, and every, every year, like clockwork, depending on who it is and if they haven't lost, uh, the, the, the question inevitably comes up and then they say, uh, this Melbourne dynasty, is it going to become a dynasty and all this sort of stuff? So Christian, throughout the weekend, we tasked you with taking a look at this Melbourne side, this Melbourne current side, which is uh, obviously eight and zero to start the season and comparing them to the Richmond of 2017 to 2019 when they were at their peak, the Hawthorne side of 2013 to 2015 when they had the three-peat and the Geelong side, and I, I threw it open to you about the Geelong side, but you said the Geelong side from 2007 until 2008. Uh, and just sort of see where the metrics are for this side and if they could become a dynasty team in years to come. Yeah, so I think I think we can safely say we've probably gone early looking at this query. And I think one of the big things for me is as good as Melbourne's been, They've won three finals um, and comparing yeah, to some of the not others. A dynasty. Yeah. They're, they're a great team right and now, I'm, but I'm, they I'm, are not. Yeah. And I'm trying, not. Not, not trying to take anything away from them. I'm just saying the, the teams we're comparing them to, are, you know, Hawthorne who sort of went, um, I think they went nine and zip, you know, in finals for those, those three years. Uh, Geelong obviously won their six finals and Richmond won uh, nine or so finals in those three years as well. So again, it's, it's, they're only 33 games into this sort of awesomeness of Melbourne. So that's what I've sort of used start of last year to this year. Um, and sort of, as you said, compared it to the other three. So at the moment, looking from the start of round one last year to round eight this year, they've got a winning percentage of 85%. So they won 85% of their games. Richmond from 2017 and 19 was 76% of games. Uh, Hawthorne during their three-peat was 80% of games. Um, so Melbourne are clearly higher than those two. But again, Geelong, 2007, 2008, won 88% of games. Um, and that's including their finals. So uh, you look at, in terms of scoring, again, we know competition scoring's come down. So, again, we go back to Geelong, 2007, 2008. They were 118 points per game, um, first in the comp. Hawthorne were 111 points per game um, across their three years, which was number one in the comp, but just by a long way. They were the only team scoring, uh, averaging over 100 points across those three years. So, 
Uh, Richmond were actually the second highest scoring team uh, during their dynasty, 91.8 points. I think Adelaide, Adelaide. Averaged, yeah, Adelaide averaged more across those three years. And Melbourne are only third, so 90.1. I think they're behind um, both Brisbane and I think Richmond as well is the other one that's ahead of them. So, the yeah, in terms of pure, pure offense and scoring, Hawthorne and Geelong clearly had that. Melbourne and Richmond, which we're about to get into, was more built around defense-based. Mm. It's um, pretty obvious because we've, and Jake, we've talked about this, uh, you know, in columns throughout the year on this podcast before that Melbourne doesn't really smash teams. Uh, right. We find that they'll, they'll grind out really solid eight, nine goal wins. And you look yeah. at the margin at the end and be like 50 points. Jeez. Well, they, they just... even look at the game against St. Kilda on the weekend, you know, you watch that first half and it's like, this is an absolute mauling, but then you look at the final score at the end and it's like, Oh, they just, they won. They won by 38 points, I think it was. You know, it's a comfortable win, but it wasn't. You don't look at it and think, oh, my God, they won by, you know, 15 goals. But that's the thing. It's their defence. I think you can look at the, what how what the other teams, uh, the Geelong and Hawthorne, what they, how much they were scoring. But Melbourne, there's points against. It's like 61 points or something. Yeah, so across the two years, it's 63.7 points against. Um and the previous three teams we're talking about were 75, 77, and 73. So 10 points better than any of those three. Now, they're also... Can we say now, because I think we were talking about it last year statistically, are they the, is this Melbourne defence now that we've got a, a fair sample size, the best defence we've ever seen? And I think so. And again, that's probably whether, you know, when we used to talk best defences, you used to think of the personnel. Or as a kid, it was always, you know, West Coast had a great defence. Carlton had a great defence. It was, you know, Glenn Jakovic, Guy McKenna and versus Silvani and uh, Peter Dean and things like that. But I think Melbourne's defence is purely the A-team, like their yeah. team defence, their their ability. They're, they're not stingy in terms of inside 50 counts. They, they're probably middle of the table for in terms of how many times they concede an inside 50. But as we said, world record pace in terms of scoring, per, like 36% of the time a team gets it inside 50 against Melbourne, they score. Uh, the rest of the comps at about 40%. So again, Geelong, 2007 to 2008, they were conceding a score from 46% of entries. Uh, Hawthorne, 47%. Richmond, 40%. But as I said, Melbourne, 35.5% of entries, they're conceding a score. So... Definitely, yeah, the best and most measly defence we've ever seen. Um, and then look at the mid... This is before we even look at the midfield. And some of the domination that a, a, a centre line of Gorn, Petrarca, Oliver and Viney or whoever else you want to throw in there as the number four has been and, and, and throughout the entire season and, and really all of last year as well. Yeah. yeah. And again, I'll just sort of go back to what we were talking about with the margins as well. So in terms of blowing teams off the park, so looking at since the start of last year, again, 33 games for Melbourne... Only five of their wins have been by over 50 points uh, and zero wins so far over 100 points uh, since the start of last year. So, again, looking there at... There has been a 98-point win in there, though. Yeah, so percentage of games, 15% of their games, 15% of their wins have been by over 50 points. Uh, whereas for Geelong in 07-08, again, only a two-year sample, 46% of their wins were by that's over a, 50 points. So, uh, and they had, I think... Yeah, they had five 100-point wins across those two years. So the more I look back at it, I think, again, I think a lot of people remember, we we underappreciate how good Geelong were in 2007, 2008 compared to the other 60 or 15 teams mm. that were playing against them at that stage. They might not, you know, rank number one when comparing defence to Melbourne or they might not rank number one for scoring when compared to Hawthorne a few years later, but they were 30 points better points for than any other team, 10 points better 
defensively than any other team. Plus, they just continually, you know, were smashing teams by 50 points. Well, yeah, you, you kind of I, almost forget how how much a shock that 08 loss to Hawthorne was in the grand final. Yeah, it was. That 08 loss was like the, the Richmond 2018 loss to Collingwood. And, you know, it's not to say that Melbourne's on that same path, but... You can win every game for the year, but all it takes is a bad thirty-five minutes in a in a in a prelim, and you're against done, a good man. side. Against a good side, and you you're playing a good, you're not playing a bad side in a prelim, and you know you have something like Mason Cox having the game of his life and things like that. Um, and that's just the quirky nature of a of an AFL season, home and away into finals. But I think with Geelong, not I, I, amazing. I mean, when I was growing up, the the Geelong teams of you know from seven all the way through to when they won in 11 as well. They, they were a fantastic side and they would roll out any week and you'd feel like they could win by 100 points every single weekend. But it's worth remembering and worth noting that it, that's 15 years ago now. Like the game has changed so much. I don't have to tell you guys that, but like scoring, we, we know scoring has come down. It's a totally different game. It's way more defensive. So is it unfair to compare Melbourne's scoring to Geelong well, scoring from that era. Well, I think it is. And again, that's probably, and it's why I stopped at Geelong. I could have gone back and kept looking at Brisbane and things like that. But Geelong, and you're probably right, it has changed a lot. Um, and the game changed a lot in 09 and 2010. Uh, Mick Malthouse and Ross Lyon had a lot to say about that. But forward half uh, defences became a big thing in 2000. And, and the game did change. So a lot of the scoring went down. end mm. ball movement went down. So the game's slightly different. But I've just sort of... Again, I found that one was just a nice, cosy two-year window. of This is a team for two years that was like, you, and as you just said, then you went to the football every week knowing Geelong was going to win at the minimum and probably most likely going to win by close to 50 points. It's similar with Melbourne. Each week you rock up with, to a game with Melbourne, you're like, I wonder how close the opposition will get to Melbourne this week. But you don't expect, you know, no one's going to any game expecting Melbourne to lose. So, But you are right. I mean, the game, the, yeah, the 2007-2008 Geelong dominance almost changed the game in terms of uh, coaches started to realize how important it was to stop an opposition's run on first and then try to work it out. Um, you know, your scoring based on, you know, as a lot of teams have done defense first and then work mm-hmm. out our scoring from there. So again, that's another interesting thing. I mean, Maddie talked about the midfield and ball domination, things like that. It's probably something that's not as important um, for the last two dynasties that we've seen, if we're going to include Melbourne in one. So Geelong, disposal differential in their two years um, was plus 55 per game, which was 30 better than the next team. So, um, you know, they'll have, yeah, 50, 56 more handballs and kicks than each team, each game. Uh, Hawthorne were plus 35 across their three years. uh, Number one as well. Richmond were negative 15 disposals per game, which ranked 14th across their Mm. three years. So they had less of the ball than their opposition. They ran and carried with it a lot more. So they they felt... They could they could hurt you and they were damaging with fewer touches. As simple as that. Yeah, and it's similar to Melbourne. So Melbourne aren't in the negative, but they're only plus thirteen for disposals per game, which is mm. fifth. And they're about a. I think they've won just over the disposal counting. You know, sixty percent of their games. So it's not every week they go out and win. You know, by just hunting the ball and dominating the ball. It is. It's it's all about their defence, their structures. Sometimes the team's going to get, you know, more of the ball than us. But as long as our structure and, you know, mm. everything is set up behind the ball and, you know, even ahead of the ball once we turn it over, they're in good stead. So I think looking at Richmond and Melbourne, it's a lot more about trusting 
yeah, trusting structures and theories rather than just trying to go out and dominate possession of the ball. Is that also part of it though, not needing to win the the, the disposal differential as often? Is part of that as well the fact that the Ds are actually pretty efficient with ball in hand and with ball on foot? Whereas you look at a team on the weekend like St Kilda who were trying to sort of methodically work their way through and obviously spending more disposals, you know, in, in, in quotation marks, um, trying to get the ball forward as well. Whereas Melbourne um, kind of have that explosive. A, a little bit, but again, we've talked about it on here and it's the chaos footy versus trying to play perfect and clean footy. We've talked about Mel- Melbourne. Have, again, another stat I could have pu- pulled in here. They've averaged more turnovers. They turn the ball over more than any other team across the last two years. Is that so right? they, they go for it because, mm-hmm. and again, because it all goes back to their structure. They know, you know, they know the risk of turning the ball over in different parts of the ground. We know, okay, if we give the handball off to Oliver and you see Oliver start to run forward and kick the ball, yeah. we need Jake Lever to move, you know, to this position on the ground, you know, to be in line with the kicker. You know, they'd have all these, they'd have all these things in place to protect the time that we're going to turn it over 76 times today. So well, let's, get, only, let's get ready And if you're that, only so. giving up scores on 33-odd percent of your inside 50s against... And you're scoring from 50 or 45% of your inside 50s. It, it's a it's a gamble that pays off most time. So you might yeah. as well roll that dice. Yeah, and same as Richmond. And we spoke about Richmond. Richmond were happy to sort of fall back in defense and let teams do whatever they wanted through the midfield. Handball, kick, do whatever you want in the midfield. But once you kick it close to Alex Rand, Dylan Grimes or Asprey, we're going to win that contest. And then through handball, we're going to take it the length mm. of the field and score it at the other end. So again, it is, it's it's quite interesting in terms of the game now. It's It's... Less about perfection and a lot more about, and you know, whether it's a boring word for people that watch footy and sort of don't analyse it as much, but structures. It's all about structure and keeping that shape of our team because it's not It's not about, you know, winning inside 50s every single game. We can't guarantee we can do that. We can't win contested possessions or disposal every game, mm. but we can be set up in our back six the same way each and every time or plan for it anyway. Coming full circle then on the uh, who beats them, Jake, who does beat them this season? Um, I have to have a look at the fixture um, all the way through, you know, in terms. But I, but put it this way: Melbourne's going to start favourite every single game they play this year, all the way through to the grand final if they get there. And I dare say they'll start favourite in every single game next year as well. I mean, if if you were to take Christian Petrarca out or Max Gorn out, they just missed a game. It, it's not going to change the odds or the line that much. You know, it's not to take anything away from them. They're, they're star players, but they've got so many of them. And it is, going back to that point, it is the structure. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, we, we were saying sitting here this time last year saying, will Adelaide win a game? And we said, surely they will eventually. But for the fun of it, we'll just say, no, they'll go. They won't win all year. No one's ever done it. No one's just run through the whole t- league and won the flag. Could they be the first? Why not? Is it outrageous to say that? The, the one that I'll look at is it's later in the year. And again, so from, I mean, you can almost pick from round 17 onwards. Their, their opposition goes Geelong, Port Adelaide, Bulldogs, Fremantle, Collingwood, Carlton, Brisbane. So Tough you think, yeah, and you think for some, some of those teams, whether it's Carlton, Port Adelaide or Bulldogs, would be desperate to probably win a game to either get into the top eight or to get into the top four. So they're going to have some hungry teams come mm. later in the season. That's probably when they're going to, which is probably good for them. Finals is going to come early for them because they're going to well, play about three here's or four one. teams. If, yeah. if, you're, if you're Simon Goodwin and you're 17-0 and 0 or something, are you going <laughs> to start resting players or oh. do you think we want to just keep winning? 
the, the the there's always the I know it sounds strange, but there's always that that dark cloud hanging over the New England Patriots from that season where they lost in the the Super Bowl after having the perfect year. To the well, New I think Knights. there's more there's there's there would naturally be more pressure on a team in finals if you go undefeated in the home and away season. I, I agree. If you're if you're eight points clear going into the last round, or if you're twelve points clear with two rounds to go. Do you think about that and just go, there's no need to be a perfect team because in finals it ramps up again and the pressure's yeah. on. Well, exactly. If you finish top by by three games and then you're playing, you know, obviously you'd have the you'd have the double chance. But say you win, say you win first week and you go through to the prelim. Now you've won 23 or plus the other seven. You've won 30 games in a row or whatever it is. And then you're thinking. We're in that same position, like we were just talking about with Richmond in 2018, where it's mm. like all it takes is a bad quarter, you know, and we're out. Well, we'll have to watch the Ds with interest in coming weeks, and I think we will because they're out and out uh, far and away the best team in the league. Who's their right most now, important sure. player? Who, who is their most important player? Is it Gorn? I mean, I think Petrarch is their best player. I think Oliver's the one Steve May. Stephen May, uh, I was I was leaning towards Steve. What Stephen May does, it allows Lever to play a better role. Um, I think it helps Petty. And again, we spoke about probably the big thing that I look at when I look at Melbourne is defence and who's keeping that defence. Yeah, yeah, probably Stephen May. Good. So better players in the team, but probably none as important. Fair enough. Uh, moving on, we yeah some surprise stat leaders. So we also tasked you with this, Christian, about having a look at some of the more left of field stats uh, and finding out who's impressing. And, and those that you probably wouldn't know about. So we decided to look at stats that you can't find on afl.com.au. And that's when that site decides to work for stats. Uh, and you've come up with Pop a few, that, you've come up with a few interesting little bits and pieces uh, for some, uh, look, stats you probably wouldn't know exist uh, and some stats leaders and, and who have, have been the most improved this season. So where do you want to kind of kick off it? Because uh, there's some interesting things. Yeah, again, so just sort of, you know, we all talk about disposals and Coleman medals and Mark's leaders, but I think, yeah, all the other sort of stats that we know exist. And again, some of them, as you mentioned, probably people don't don't realise do exist or some that uh, clearly get talked about, but we probably don't talk about the players that actually, you know, star in those stats. So um, again, yeah, got a whole bunch of stats here. So looking at things like score involvement. So I'll, you know, love the stat of score involvement, just how many scoring chains you've been involved in. Um, across the game. So no surprise there. Tom Hawkins, number one in the comp, 70. Petrarca second with 69. And Darcy Parrish at 67. Um, but I sort of looked at, okay, what about if you just look at in the back 50? So who's getting the ball in their back 50 that's leading to a score involved or is, is involved in a scoring chain for the other end of the field for your team? Important given, I think, one of the premiership metrics you speak of so often is uh, scores from, um, from defensive chains and from rebound 50s and from intercepts. Yeah, yeah, from being, yeah, exactly, being able to move the ball from one end the other to the other. So, just the leaders for that. So, seventeen score involvements in the defensive fifty this year for Zach Williams and Blake Hardwick. So, again, Blake Hardwick, uh, time always flies on me. Two or three years ago, I think it was the Hawthorne BNF winner. Yep. Um, it's probably you know, probably dropped out of the limelight a little bit, but still going well. And Zach Williams, I think, for Carlton. Um, Bit of a whipping this, boy, but yeah, shows... this time this time last year was a failed trade, and I think yeah. this year is just flying under the radar in terms of well, if you take looking spot. at yeah, looking at playmakers down back, um, you know, score involvements from the back half is probably a good measure for him. So those two are the number one there. Um, another one that we looked at is yeah, score launches from intercept possession. So winning the ball off the intercept and being able to turn that into a score for your team. 
Isaac Quainall is leading that uh, across the competition. So 16 times he's been able to intercept the ball off the opposition and launch a score for Collingwood from that possession. Yeah. So another one that I think people sort of watch him and think, yeah, he's a good young player, but he's been, as I said, the, the best scoring intercept player in the competition this year. Yeah, really love that he's he's on that list or, or top of that list. He's a player that I don't think a lot of people truly realize how good he is. He's a fanta- He's a very smart footballer, reads the game so well, and he's a great ball user, only getting better. Yeah, no, again, similar to GF at Hawthorne, I just love the confidence they have. They're, they're very, very good one-on-one. They're very, they, they stay close to their man, but give them the ball in hand and they're just... 100% attack almost, and it's it's fun to watch. So, um, so yeah, in terms of just total intercepts, again, Sam Taylor's the number one intercept player in the competition. Again, I think he gets a little bit of credit at GWS. Um, I'm not, I don't think he'd be all Australian just the way they're struggling, but he is a, he's a he's a gun key defender of the competition, Sam Taylor, and it wouldn't be too far off. You know, he'd be all Australian within the next two or three years, I'm sure. Um, looked at again, looking at ground ball gets, so just winning the ball. Once it hits the ground, no surprises in the overall leader, Lockie Neal. Neal. Yeah, 104, but it's 20 more than anyone else. So the no, next he's best just is Oliver taken at 84. The exactly. He's so in. You look at the names below him, you know, it's, it's Oliver and uh, Ben Keys and, and guys that get a lot of the ball. And you're like, you're still 20 better than all of these guys. So he's a long he's, way out in he's front. He's the Geelong of 08, the midfielders. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> still of ground balls. Yeah. So then I looked at ground balls by zone, forward 50 ground balls. Um, I mean, there's there's four equal leaders on there. Uh, Petrarca, Walters, Norton, and probably the one that surprised me, Will Hayward. Um, again, someone that people look at at Sydney and go, he's a nice addition to the Sydney forward yeah. line. Well, he's actually leading, you know, he, he once the ball hits the deck in the Sydney forward line, he's going to win it off the ground more he, often he's, than anyone he's else. He's a bit like Isaac Heaney. He's very good. He's, he's got great hands. He's got a great leap, really good on the lead. And he's a great forward, but he does work at ground level too. He's, they've got two of those kind of hybrid players. Yep. And then at the in the back line, so D50 ground balls, again, low number, Tom Dodie, 26. But it's actually, again, seven more than any other. So no one else has had nine, more than 19 D50 ground balls. So again, for Adelaide, um, you know, dangerous small forwards. If the ball hits the ground, hopefully Tom Dodie can get there before they do. Um, looking into the ruck now. So again, we keep track of who the best ruck rover combinations are. And it probably wasn't a surprise that I, I knew it would be wits and somebody. Just didn't know which one he would give it Anderson. to most. Well, you've no, you've picked the one that he wasn't. So Whitson Miller, 32 yeah. times they've connected for an effective hit out. And then Whitson Rowell, a second at 22. So they're the two, the two biggest ruck rover combinations across the competition are both Wits and another midfielder. So mm. 30s Gorn and Oliver at 19 times they've connected for uh, an effective hit out. Talk about more underappreciated players. Uh, Jared Witz is probably up there and has been consistently, when fit, one of the more impressive rucks. I remember going back 2018, 2019, talking about him in the same you know breath as Brody Grundy before he had that mega deal sign. Max Gorn, these yeah. other you know Goldstein. Um, I, I think he's been the best Gold Coast recruit outside of Gary Ablett, but Gary Ablett feels a bit different with you know, being Gary Ablett and the start of the, the franchise. I, I think he's been the best player they've brought into the club. Obviously, we can talk about the dozens of players that have gone elsewhere um, and have played strong roles or become great players. But I think he's been... I think a lot of people just didn't particularly rate him that highly. They brought him in and he's become he's become a captain of the club. He's become a fantastic elite player. And 
yeah, I, I honestly don't reckon there's another player out there that Gold Coast have brought in that's gone to such, has had such a significant jump to another level. Like Ablett was great at Geelong. He was great there. If you look at pure ruck work too, in terms of tap work, how well you tap it and how, how you stop your opposition ruckman from winning a hit out, only Nick Natanui rivals Jared Witts. Like those two are clearly in terms of right up there in terms of the other Ruckman just has no influence when they yeah, come up against Yeah, but Witts plays every Nat week. Natanui shows up once every three months. So you're picking, Nat, you're picking Witts first over Natanui, I tell you. I Jake won't pick a Ruckman in his 23, give nah. him a chance. Give me four Lockie Neals. <laughs> or three and a Ben Keys. <laughs> uh, where else are we looking for uh, uh, sort of... Interesting little. You got to, well, you got meters gained or some stuff on that. Yeah, I got some meters. Hey, gained. did we work out the meters gained issue we had last week with Tom Stewart? No, again. So we've confirmed it's one thousand and twenty-five. Um, was how many meters he had in that game? So we just got to yeah, we sent a Please query as to why. Yeah, a query as to yeah, just where that number was from, and it's it's probably something to do with the way our feeds are working with them. But yeah, it's. Sort of no confusion with the number. It's 1,025 metres gained. Um, just not sure why that page had something different. Um, but if you talk about, yeah, metres gained, Jaden Sh- Yeah. yeah a- 717 raw metres gained per game. Then you go to effective metres gained only, and he's still number one, so 543. Um, next most is Bailey Dale. But assisted metre gain is probably, assisted metres gain is probably the one that surprised me. It's Scott Pendlebury this year at 427. So... Um, the prime ball movement is sort of, yeah, giving it out, probably, you know, giving it off more often now to the younger guys, Dacos. Um, I think Lipinski's a pretty good sort of, you know, you, run and carry player, the two Dacos. Who else is on that so, assisted metres gain list if you've got a few more names? Yeah, no, uh, Lucky Neal was up there. I don't think he was second. Um, Darcy yeah, Parrish? It's, yeah, it's Darcy Parrish, Lucky Neal, and I think um, uh, Ben Keyes was another one. So, yeah, high handball players that sort of get it to the running the guys running past. Um, and if we talk about um, ball use, so disposals per turnover is another good one. So how many disposals you have for every turnover you have. Um, so looked at the top sort of 150 ball winners in the competition, always on top of this stat, but Pendlebury's taking it to another level. So he's 13 <laughs> disposals per turnover. Um, but the next, the next best player is probably one that we've, you, we identified early as well in here, Nick Martin getting a lot of credit mm. for what he does. He, he hits, you know, hits uh, the scoreboard and people look at his 30 touches and his three goals, how well he plays. He just does not turn the ball over though. He's had, um, so one disposal for, uh, sorry, 10 disposals for every one turnover that he's had. So uh, second best in the comp behind Pendlebury. Uh, but what we see with Nick Martin, he's probably got like a, a higher kick to ratio than most of the other guys that have a low disposal per turnover rate. So he does actually kick the ball into space and hit targets. So interesting. Um, yeah, he's been a good ball user. Who's on the other end of that list? <laughs> no, I haven't gone to negatives. So I, I, I knew you. I would ask, give you a few names. I, <laughs> I knew you would ask the question, so I refused to look. So let's just keep it all uh, upbeat and positive at the moment. Um, again, we talk about one-on-one contests, um, and you know who wins and loses them. So again, the offensive one-on-one contest is who the attacking team is kicking to in the one-on-one and their job is probably to win possession of the ball. So the best one-on-one offensive player this year has been Charlie Curnow, uh, has won 18 of his 31 contests. So that's a 58% win rate. And that's not even halving them. That's not even halving. That's clearly just him winning possession of the ball um, or sort of knocking it down and allowing a teammate to win possession of the ball as well. So there's sort of two ways you can win an offensive one-on-one. So 58%. um, And again, he's, He's in the top 50 for one-on-ones um, 
competed against. The only player to ever finish above 50% and in the top 50 for one-on-ones competed is Dustin Martin. And I think that was 2017 um, and where he won about 52% of contests. So again, Charlie Curnow sort of on track if he kept this up to become the second player to win at least half of his one-on-one contests. Good company to be in. Uh, exactly, yeah. Comeback I think, season, Charles. Yeah. Um, I think Dustin Martin, you know, that season's almost one of the best individual seasons we've ever seen. And that was just one of the stats. I think it uh, is. So obviously, yeah, we obviously look at defensive one-on-ones again. So Charlie Curnow's job's to win it. As a defender, your job's not to lose it. Uh, so Stephen May's only lost one of his 32 defensive one-on-ones this year, which is the best rate of anyone. Um that's and again, unreal, so, actually. so Sam May, Sam May, Sam May, Stephen May doesn't lose a contest. So again, one out of 32 is lost. So he might spoil it and goes out of bounds. You might win it. I don't know. He's not a high win, but it's a defensive one-on-one player that actually just goes for it. And that's Sam Collins. He's actually won 21 of his 39 defensive one-on-one. So 54%. His win rate is almost as high as Charlie Kerno's, And Charlie Kerno's is the actual target of the kick. So Sam Collins is playing against the target and he's still more like he's a very aggressive defender. He is, he He is. is. But does that uh, say, does that sort of highlight that he could play and be a successful forward? Maybe maybe. it sort of does. I mean, if you're good in the air, you're good in the air, but like he, like he's obviously can read the, read the ball and read the play. Well, well, it's quite funny. We we do have, and there's quite a few case studies of failed forwards making it um, as key defenders. Um, Liam, Liam Jones. Jones and yeah, there's a, there's a four or five, four or five. Um, I think Michael Hurley is another one based on junior. So four or five of the all Australian key defenders, Jeremy McGovern, where they all started as forwards in as juniors, probably not as many stories of failed. You know, I'm not saying Sam Collins is a failed defender, but the stats would suggest his, his, his attacking now is, is there that he could present on a lead or outbody his opponent one away. He's a big boy, so it would make a lot of sense. But mm. yeah, that's that's kind of a, an interesting stat that the defender has that kind of a win yeah. rate in those. Yeah, especially win rate, especially yeah. without Ben King, you know, I know they've got Chol and Casbolt. Maybe it's worth a bit of an experiment. Yeah, it could be. We're well, on the weekend, so let's not maybe de- uh, mess with a, a winning formula, though, Jake. Well, uh, I'll use that as a segue. So I've also looked at sort of, okay, so we I haven't looked at the best kick, so a little tease, I think, uh, uh, Jared Barker next week on ESPN. We're going to look at the best kicks in the competition by zone and Ooh, by type good. and things there like that. Go. But two, I've given you, I've looked at just kicking inside 50. So I like to call that the money kick. The, the Monday um, kick. No, I think well, okay. Want... The, we'll call it the Monday kick on this podcast. Uh, <laughs> so again, two ways to measure that retained. So just how often do I kick it in or how often does a player kick it inside 50 and his team wins the next possession, whether that be a clean mark or a ground ball get or anything. Um, and that's Errol Goulden at the moment. So 74% of his 27 kicks inside 50 have resulted in a teammate's possession. So that's number one of the competition. But um, yeah, if we put Sam Collins up forward, Jack Lacocious is uh, 43% of his kicks inside 50 are actually marked by a teammate this, uh, by a teammate this season. So that's the highest percentage. So again, mm. Lacocious is kicking to Casbolt and Chole and um, could be Collins. Another- yeah, it no, goes no. to show that you can be a, such a highly touted junior forward, but then when your kicking skills are as good as they are, having him a bit further up the ground and looking inside for that last kick, because that's where a lot of teams struggle is that last kick inside 50. To have a bloke who's getting a mark, did you say mark 40% yeah, of the time? 40, 43%. So he's had 21 yeah. kicks inside 50 this year, and I think, yeah, 10 of them have been marked uh, yeah. by a teammate. So play him, play him up the ground. A lot of those might be um, by Ben Ainsworth as well. So, again, we, we track everyone on a lead and how often you take the mark and how often you're a defender on a lead and get a spoil in. Ben Ainsworth, when he's been hit up on a mark, on, a, on a lead, 
Um, he's 88% of the time he's marked it. So 15 of 17 times he's been hit up on a lead. He's taken the mark. So again, that a lot that also comes down to, you know, the, the guy kicking it to you, yep. being able to kick it, you know, within your reach. But he's probably the best, the most safest target on the lead. Uh, whereas on a, a defender, um, Joel Smith only allows his uh, opponent to take a lead mark 31% of the time they're targeted. So, and again, I look at Joel Smith, I'll, Sort of a, you know, he, I think he's a athletics background as well. So he was, he didn't have high junior numbers when he was got picked up by Melbourne. We didn't know much about him. But he's clearly that pace off the mark. Mm-hmm. You just can't, cannot beat this guy on a lead. I know he's a good jumper as well. Um, so he's pretty good overhead. But as I said, um, I think, I think the comp average is if you're on a lead, you probably take the mark about 75% of the time. And as I said, he's conceding one he's 31% of the time. So for his 13 leads. Um, have you got um, Have you got the player who's kicked the ball out on the full the most? No, no negatives, Jake. Oh, Again, oh, come keep on, it on it. You, you love to let's let's we'll do that. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that off air. <laughs> no, no, two, two or three weeks time, we can do we can do a Jake's uh, Jake's, Jake's negative stats or something, and I can give you all those. But no, I haven't looked at the bottom of any of these tables. So. Uh, just one more. So pressure, again, we talk about pressure gauge and team pressure and things like that, but obviously we do measure it at a player level. Um, so the number one pressure player this year has been Sam Berry, who, again, we try to use heart. You should have played at least half the games to be eligible to qualify in these stats. He's played four of the eight games. Um, average, yeah, average 31 pressure acts per game. So he's number one in that. But we also look at tackle efficiency. So if you get your hands on a guy, how often do you actually stop them from either getting an effective disposal away or a disposal at all away. Our man, um, our man Josh Dunkley, feature high in these categories? Um, not in these two. So, again, Josh Dunkley, I think, is number one at the Bulldogs for pressure, but he wasn't in the top five of the comp. So he is a very good pressure player. Um, but, yeah, tackle efficiency-wise, two very different players. So Riley O'Brien. Big Ruckman from Adelaide. Again, 30 of his 35 tackle attempts have actually created a tackle, um, an effective play. And Kasai Pickett for Melbourne, completely opposite player. I was going to say, forward, yeah, 25 out of 30. So, again, a lot of Riley O'Brien's might be just, you know, putting hands on the midfielders coming out of stoppages of that. But, yeah, Kasai Pickett is actually probably he's the more impressive one. He's chasing down. Defenders and guys. I and don't think Riley O'Brien's ever chased anyone down in his life. Yeah, there wouldn't be too many rundowns for uh, uh, Riley O'Brien. Just again. that one time. <laughs> um, and just looking at your pressure acts, again, putting pressure on the opposition and trying to create a turnover. Um, the most turnovers forced by their pressure acts this year, Willem Drew and Zach Bailey are the equal leaders. Again, Zach Bailey's a surprise for me. We all know how good he is in front of goal, how great of a kick he is. But his pressure work is actually... He's causing good. opposition mistakes. So it's probably one side of his game that's not getting noticed. Yeah. Um, and then one. the other one is just if you do create a turnover from your pressure, does your team go back and score the other way? Lincoln McCarthy's number one for that. So from his from the turnovers he's created from his pressure, Brisbane, of course, scored 56 points from that. You just uh, assume those would be number- closer to goal. So exactly. So yeah, tackles inside 50. Yeah. We'll fall up four high in that. But as I said, so to have Zach Bailey high up in total turnovers forced and Link McCarthy high in turnovers created. You've got two small forwards there that you're just giving two big ticks to in terms of you're both hitting the scoreboard and you're both killing any pressure as well. So well, No wonder they're the best offensive team this uh, season. Add Charlie Cameron in, Cam Rayner. I mean, they've got, they've got so many of these guys. Even Cluggage kicked a bag on the weekend. Kill you at ground level. Yeah. No, plenty of, uh, plenty of 
Good stuff. Yeah. Aside from the fact there were no negatives, but um, I'll, <laughs> I'll take the positives. Uh, let's, well, before we, before we do move on, we will have um, some, speaking of deep dives that Jared Barker is going to be doing uh, this week. So we know what's going to be on next week with the best kicks, um, you know, depending on where you are and, and, and where you are the, on the field and all that. But this week we're looking at the most improved players from, from last season. Uh, any teasers there before we move on to justified hype and hyperbole? Uh, no, well, the guy that comes up on top as the most improved player so far, it's probably no surprises given it's, it's his role change, but it's probably the third biggest improvement we've seen across the last four or five years from one season to the other. So it's a- and, and no spoiler alert, but I got 50 guesses at guessing this player and I couldn't get it. So Is that right? You oh, won't- okay. Well, let's, let's not reveal who this is. Yeah. Uh, number two player, I think, is a, is a good one, an obvious one that most people know, but the number one might not... Might come as a surprise. And again, okay. sometimes, and again, you read the number one play and it, it, it comes down opportunity. There wouldn't be too much where he's saying he, you know, he's probably has improved himself, but it's clearly about opportunity within okay. the team. Well, there's a little hint for everyone at home. Uh, ESPN.com.au forward slash AFL. That will be out tomorrow morning uh, about 9am. I think uh, that, that deep dive. So keep your eye out. Or if you subscribe to our newsletter uh, and you can do that on the site as well, you will get that in your inbox at around lunchtime tomorrow. Uh, is the hype justified or is it hyperbole, Jake? One of our favorite segments where we'll say a few statements. You guys tell me whether the hype is justified or I'm speaking in hyperbole. First one, uh, the only person who can stop Patrick Cripps winning the Brown though is Patrick Cripps, Jake. No, um, that is not justified at all because okay. have you heard of Lockie Neal? Have you heard of Andy Brayshaw? Have you heard of Chris? heard of Petrarca? Andy Brayshaw on this podcast? I can tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Have you heard no, of, I mean, have look, you heard of Zach Butters. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll, no, we'll come no back chance. to that. We'll come back to that uh, towards the end of the season. I can tell you, um, he's no. It's obviously he's obviously the, the the clubhouse leader right now. He's the pretty short favourite. I can't remember a player being so short. Um, you know, only really a third of the way through the year. He's been phenomenal, and, he, and he's really only played six games. Of the six games he's played, I've got him 3-3-2, three, 3-3-2. Three, two, three, three, two. So very impressive. He's on track for 40 votes at this rate, which is unheard of. Um, now, not to say that he's going to get 40, but you'd expect him to poll in the 30s. You'd expect him to be the favourite, but I, I think it's still way too early. I mean, if Lockie Neal goes out and has a strong game next week, then Lockie Neal's in probably leading it. So I don't think so yet, but... Well, we saw he it's was very. It, it's looking. It's looking like a good year for Paddy Cripps. Let's just say. I, that. I think the subtext of what I was trying to get across, Jake, was that he was cited by the MRO on the weekend for a, a yeah. tackle. Was deemed not enough to be suspended. Yeah. Uh, he's also been pretty injury prone over the last few seasons. So I'm, I'm saying, if he continues to play injury free and play fairly, I don't think anyone's getting near. If him he continues new- his his current performance level and output he will win the Brownlow by eight he's, votes he's averaging 30 touches and two goals a game in but every can, game can you average that over, no one's ever done that we spoke about Dusty Martin's 2017 which I think most people would acknowledge is the best let's say the more of the modern era because we're not going to go back to the 1940s or something but that's that's the best season we've ever really seen any of us from he, from a player he's kicked at least a goal in his first eight what seven seven games? So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. So seven games. He's played yeah. seven games, including that game where he got injured. Yeah, correct. He's kicked a goal in every single game. So he's got he's on a seven game yeah. goal kicking streak. The highest in his career before this was just three, and it was one goal, one goal, yeah. two goals, one goal. No, back he's in kicking 2018. the ball. And that was always the knock on him. You know, we you know we're all Carlton fans here. You'd 
he'd, he'd be dominating the middle. And then he'd take a mark 35 metres out directly in front. And you think he's, he's going to just drag this to the left or something. No, he's, 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 he's great. He's playing well. And I think he needed that year last year where he didn't play that well, but he probably got his body right, got his body right in the offseason. He's playing fantastic. Can he? My question is, can he maintain it? Because we know like, we've seen Lockie Neal maintain it over the course of the year. We've mm. seen Clayton Oliver do it. We've seen Christian Petrarca do it. Can Patrick Cripps do it for, for another 13, 14 weeks? That's the question I have. If we're at round 17 and he was like this, I'd say yes. We've still got a long way to go, though. Fair enough. Uh, Christian, we talked about premiership metrics and the Blues specifically a few weeks ago. Are they starting to hit those metrics yet? Starting to. So still, again, when we talk about top six uh, being where you want to be, some of the key metrics, they're still seventh, tenth, tenth, ninth, tenth. So that's, you know, points against and points for. So they're getting there. I think they were um, surprisingly, again, because when we spoke spoke about them, I think they were four and oh. Um, and they were ranking in 14th and 15th in a lot of those stats. So sort of trying to temper a lot of people's expectations. Mm. They're heading in the right direction. But I, I just keep coming back again as a current sport. They're, they're eight weeks into a, a coaching regime with Michael Voss. It's it's still going to be teething issues and things like that. So I, it does get me sort of excited because it, it's, you know, to use a Dwayne Russellism, it's scarily good of how, <laughs> you know, how how good they could be towards the end of next year when yeah. they've got 25, 35 weeks of Michael Voss coaching it because he coaches them to sort of play at, at supreme confidence, that that ball movement out of handball, you know, watching Zach Fisher run around the weekend. I think Voss has sort of been able to get the best out of each of those players and get them to play at full confidence. I think we were, yeah. again, looking at previous coach, previous years and previous coaches was always defensive and we we're always sort of bogged down by trying to sort of stop scoring first and mm. try to get it. I think it's exciting for it, but again, it's, it's only eight weeks worth so far. So they've still got a lot more to learn as yeah. they go. Well, you, you mentioned Fisher probably played his best game for the club on the weekend. Yeah. Uh, Kerno career best form, Cripps career best form. Uh, Zach Williams, you mentioned just being played in, in a spot that he's comfortable with and he's flying under the radar doing what he does really well. I think you're right when you say Voss has everyone playing to the best of their abilities in a position that suits their abilities. I think Carlton, I mean, obviously Melbourne's Melbourne is in another stratosphere to every other team, but there aren't many sides that have shown their ceiling this year. Melbourne accepted to as the exception to be as good as Carlton. I think Carlton's absolute ceiling and peak seven, eight minute bursts are as good as anyone that I've seen. Problem is, their down periods have been full yeah. quarters and halves. Yeah. That's the worrying part. Their best is scary good. Yeah. Thanks, Dwayne. Um, Dustin <laughs> Martin's return to Richmond has them back in premiership contention. Christian? Uh, I'm never putting it down to one player. It certainly goes a long way. But again, um, West Coast numbers sort of cloud the issue a bit, but you look at Richmond over three or four weeks and they're starting to claw their way back into the good teams, not the top teams, but the good, you know, the yeah. Good team. Yeah. Um, so again, you know, we keep coming back to Melbourne and Brisbane are clearly further ahead, but again, talking about premiership standards, um, there's a lot of, for Richmond now, they've finally got themselves back to two and three in a lot of key areas. Um, so, I mean, they're second for points four. Uh, number one for points from turnovers, which we always talk about. Fourth for points from turnover differential. So again, comparing that to Carlton, we just spoke about Carlton are 11th, Richmond mm. are fourth. So there is, there's some very good numbers for Richmond that they're starting to get um, their strength back into the game. Dustin Mann's only going to help them, but... I'm, Tom Lynch in form. Exactly. I'm not going to sit here and say just just adding Dustin Martin's going to tip them over the line. There's a lot of lot of things they've had to fix and they're, they're fixing them as we speak. 
Jake, you've got 30 seconds. Ryan Mansell's hit. Uh, was it worthy of a week, more or less? Oh, it was worthy of a lot more than a week. I wouldn't have been... I wouldn't have been outraged if he got three to four weeks for it. I think it was, we've seen two to three weeks given for uh, bumps that might go a little high, which are football actions. I, I understand that we've got to stamp it out and we've got to protect the head. I understand that. Fair enough. And we do. But what Mansell did was not a football action. The play was dead and he drove his elbow into the back of a player's head that couldn't actually move and was pinned to the ground. I think the AFL and the MR, they missed a trick. Missed a moment in setting a precedent and an example of a player, and they didn't do it. And I, yeah. I, I just don't want to see it. I know we talk about it a lot, but these are the exact things we want to rule out and remove from junior football and the elite level too. But we just, it's not a footballing action. It's a weak, gutless, um, you know, elbow to the back of the head that nobody deserves, no matter what you think. And yeah, I reckon, I think three weeks would have been the minimum. I would have been happy with, but I think I three or four was probably more accurate before the pod that it's very different because umpires are obviously, you have to protect the umpires on the field, but you look at the the force with which Toby green exerted on an umpire that got in six weeks, um, yeah. you know, outside of play. This was also outside of play. The whistle had gone yeah. um, four weeks minimum, I think a month. It's just grubby, grubby yeah. acts doesn't need to be in the game. And if you show that you're really strong against this sort of stuff, it'll stop happening. A week's yep. just a slap on the wrist. No, it is. And it's it's like anything. You, you've got to deter players from doing it. One week. One week's nothing. We see players getting a week for hardly anything. I, I thought, I just think that they, they let him off a little light there. I know, you know, he's not, you know, had, had it been Toby Green, he probably does get four to five weeks because of his history. And that's yeah. just the way it goes. And, you know, but yeah, I, I don't know. I think he was let off a little light there. Um, guys, I'm just looking down the footy tips ladder for the tipping competition we've got, and I can't seem to. Jake Michaels, 21. What are you? I am. Uh, I'm equal first. Back You're back on top. top. I'm technically fourth because of margin, but I've got 51 tips. Oh, so I'm equal first, but I'm fourth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so no, you're C fourth. Jolly, 16th, 49 tips. Behind, yeah. Um, yeah, only a couple behind, but but there we go. So if you do want to join in, I don't think it's too late. You can join in ESPN, oh, sorry, footytips.com.au forward slash ESPN footy pod. Uh, get involved. Good fun. Um, yeah, it is good fun. Um, what's the prize? What's the winner get? No, I don't think. Oh, I'm not interested. Can I, can I, I throw it to you behind. and you can come up with a 100th episode prize and a, yeah. and a footy tips prize and you can do that all. Episode. Um, I think that'll wrap us up for the day, guys. Uh, Christian, thanks for coming with uh, some interesting and little bits and pieces. This has been a fun one. Like I said, if you want to ask Champion Data a question, uh, we can do that in the coming weeks. What do you think? Yep, anytime. Excellent. So hit us up on uh, Twitter at Footy Tips. Jake, good to speak with you as always. Uh, and to everyone at home, we'll speak to you in the next episode. Listen to all the latest episodes by subscribing to the ESPN Footy Pod wherever you get your podcasts.